This is PodBridge. Connecting the U.S., the Middle East, and the world. Welcome, and thank you for joining another episode of PodBridge. On each episode, our goal is to explore issues of common concern and common interest to the United States, the Middle East, and the broader world. We always try to discuss current and relevant events and things that are going on in recent history. There is nothing that has been more important and has captured people's attention more than the recent election in the United States just two weeks ago. With us, we have an all-star cast to discuss what this election means for the United States and for the rest of the world. With us from Abu Dhabi is Mina Larebi, Editor-in-Chief at The National. Mike Allen is the co-founder and executive editor of Axios. Jonathan Carl is the ABC News Chief Washington Correspondent and Chief White House Correspondent. And my dear friend, Brett Baer is host of the special report with Brett Baer and chief political correspondent at Fox. Welcome to all of you and thank you for joining us. I'm gonna start with one broad question. I'm gonna ask each one of you in the same order to kind of answer what it means for you is this election, we saw a lot of firsts. We saw a lot of, we saw a record turnout. We saw the largest number of mail-in ballots. We saw a fairly divided country. What does this mean for America going forward? What does this election, the way it was carried out, the way the campaign was handled in the middle of a pandemic, how do you think it reflects on America and what does it mean for America? I'm gonna start with Mina, even though she's in Abu Dhabi, but I'm keen to get the, the answer to the same question from everyone. Hello, Ambassador, and thank you for having me join you on this. Um, really important conversation because everyone is still looking towards Washington and wanting to see how the final chapter of the Trump presidency will actually roll out. I would say there are three elements that people are looking towards the United States uh, about. The first is how the election is determined, um, whether President Trump can seize, um, how that transition for President Biden will actually look like because transitions of power are fascinating. And in the Middle East, in many of those countries, we either don't have elections, we don't have a regular transfer of power through the ballot box, or if we do, it's always chaotic. And somehow we had believed that in the United States, despite the complications of electoral votes and so forth, it wasn't chaotic. And so to see that chaos across uh, the Atlantic on the other side of the world is interesting for people um, and to see can institutions survive that unpredictability that we're witnessing at the moment. So that's the first. Second, of course, the elections are important because who sits in the White House is of huge importance to the Middle East. It has been for decades, but particularly since September 11th in 2001, since the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq. Um, and, and the ideas that are, are linked to a military presence, usually meaning greater political engagement or disengagement. And we saw that particularly with the Obama administration coming in, uh, candidate Barack Obama um, came to, to win the elections based on one of his main promises being, we will leave Iraq, we will get, get out, we will end the war. That was the exact term, we will end the war. And yet in some ways he was still embroiled for uh, the eight years of his presidency. So people are interested to see what a Biden presidency actually means for Middle East policy, 
and what it means for particularly the Iraq and Afghanistan presence and whether a military disengagement means a political disengagement. And thirdly, and lastly, I'll say that the United States, of course, matters on the multilateral global stage. And we've seen, uh, again, unpredictable uh, turn of events in the last uh, four years. So people will be interested to see whether the United States will play a different role with the UN, whether the COVID-19 global efforts will be changed by a more engaged uh, United States or not. So there's a lot of focus on multilateralism, the Bretton Woods um, infrastructure and what we've been used to, or whether it's really changed without any going back on what that brave new world will look like. Thank you, Mina. Mike, you've covered elections from every possible angle, politics, data, turnout. What, what, did, the, what did you learn or what surprised you the most about this election? Yeah, Mr. Ambassador, uh, thank you so much for this worthy conversation and congratulations on this great series that you're building. It's been such a, a, an amazing run of conversations. This group is going to try not to mess up your track record uh, of, uh, of great conversations. But what surprised me is how well the system worked. And I think that's going to surprise some of your listeners who are seeing some of the craziness and are rightly concerned about the long run uh, for this great country. But look at what worked. People who wanted to vote, voted. We didn't have lines at midnight as we were afraid uh, that we were uh, going to. The uh, Looking out of my window into to Georgetown in Washington, DC, they've taken the boards off the windows. There wasn't uh, the violence that a lot of people uh, were afraid of. And there's a pretty clear very clear, decisive result. Despite what you might be reading on social media, the race is not really that close. So people who wanted to vote, voted. Uh, the country was peaceful and celebrated when there was a clear uh, result and the outcome's pretty undeniable. Now, Ambassador, what worries me is that there's 20, 30, 40% of this country who either doubts the result or doubts the legitimacy of the incoming president-elect. And that's a big problem. And that's not easily healed. You don't heal that with a speech or with a new tone. Uh, that's been years in the making and will not be quick to fix. Yeah, so you touched on the credibility issue. So I, I think that's something we need to touch on too because it looks to me like not only is the country fairly divided, I mean, Donald Trump got almost 74 million votes and Biden is getting, I think, what, 78, 79 million votes. That shows that there are two groups almost evenly divided that have different visions and different perspectives of what they think America should be. And now each side doesn't believe what the other side is articulating. So this, this brings it down to your, your line of work, which is credibility in the news industry and the media industry but also credibility in institutions. How, how, does, how do we get out of this? It's a massive problem and the media has one of the biggest problems and we completely deserve it. Uh, we have earned our credibility crisis because the media partly uh, through a poor job of explaining and anticipating 2016, partly a poor job of anticipating exactly what was gonna happen in 2020. There's a lot of people out there that either literally tune us out or psychically tune us out. And like the other journalists on 
uh, this uh, broadcast who I admire so much, like we're all working in our own ways to bring, uh, uh, to bring that back to help people know that uh, we're creating information that they can trust. But it's a, it's a deep hole for the media and like all institutions in America, I think I think the military is the only institution uh, that hasn't really suffered in the last uh, couple of years. And so, like that's the project uh, for the years uh, to come: is uh, can we show that by explaining, listening to, understanding, interpreting, narrating America, that we can be worthy of people's trust? And that's a big job. Thanks, Mike. John, you're like the Swiss army knife of reporters. You do coverage, print, articles, Sunday shows, you write books, you write articles. So you look at this from a variety of different angles. How did you see this election and what do you think the outcome means for the United States? Well, first I wanna echo some of Mike's optimism. Uh, in many ways, th this election was a great moment for America. Uh, we had a record high voter turnout. Uh, the highest percentage of eligible voters turning out since before women had the right to vote in the United States. Uh, that's pretty, pretty impressive. Uh, largely went off without a hitch. Not only um, were there none of the long lines and the issues that, that Mike talked about, uh, but uh, there was also none of the voter intimidation. There are all these horror stories going into the election where they're going to be, you know, people uh, you know, with uh, armed with, a, with, with, with assault weapons outside of polling stations, dis, you know, uh, trying to discourage people from voting. We, we didn't see that stuff. This went off. It was a peaceful, successful uh, election with, with incredible voter turnout. And yes, uh, a pretty evenly divided country, but, but a rather decisive uh, result uh, in terms of the choice for president and also a rather decisive result in terms of the choice uh, for Congress. Uh, re Republicans did very well in this election with the exception of the guy at the top. Um, uh, Republicans won virtually every toss up race in the House. Uh, Nancy Pelosi will be sitting on uh, uh, the, the narrowest Democratic majority uh, in, in a couple of decades. And uh, you know, re Republicans, it looks like, we'll see what happens in Georgia, but uh, you know, I would say have a damn good chance of, of maintaining control of, of the Senate. So. Um, you know, I, I think where, where do we go from here? Well, I, I think that it's, it's, you know, Biden has a mandate, uh, has a very clear mandate, one in, in one category that is absolutely indisputable. He has a mandate not to be Donald Trump. <laughs> you know, that was the mandate. Um, but, you know, there isn't, uh, there isn't a huge mandate to take a sharp left turn and to, uh, to, to overturn much of where we were going in a policy direction. So I think it'll be, it'll be an interesting, it'll be a challenge for him, but an opportunity for the country to, to, try, to try to move beyond uh, this, this, not just divisive, but kind of a nasty period uh, in, in our politics. And I think the nastiness uh, is what by and large was rejected uh, in this election. Thanks, John. Brett, now that we have you on board finally, what's your analysis of of what you saw on November 3rd? Well, I agree with Mike and, uh, and John in that uh, it is a credit uh, to the American people that they came with such numbers in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic to vote. Uh, it is a credit that we have seen very few problems. And for all of the legal challenges and talks about irregularities and, and uh, 
the allegation of widespread fraud, we have not seen that. And I think that that is going to pan out to be one of the big stories of this election. But also to John's point is that it's a divided country. And um, Democrats coming into power need to realize that 73 million plus people voted for Donald Trump and against what they believed was a progressive agenda uh, going someplace they didn't want to go. So I, I do think that uh, Georgia is probably going to split and the control of the U.S. Senate will remain in, in GOP hands. And therefore, a divided government is a new you know, phenomena about negotiating. And it not only affects us domestically, but I think it affects you all and the world in how we deal with foreign policy. And I think that, um, that this is going to be a really crucial time for the U.S. Uh, to get over this election, but then to figure out how to actually get things done. That's been where we've been lacking in years past. We, we saw a record uh, mail-in ballot turnout. I think it's almost half the voters, maybe a little under 50% mailed in their ballots because of the pandemic. Do you think that's here to stay or do you think that's just a one-off because of Corona this year? I mean, I think that people will find uh, comfort in not having to go to a poll, uh, polling place. Uh, I do think that we could figure out a system that's better than the one that we have. Um, you know, we do, each state does it differently and people don't fully understand that, but it's each election uh, system is done within the state or the local jurisdiction. So there is no federal standard, even though they are voting on a federal office. Um, so eventually, we're going to have to get to a place where uh, there's some kind of guidelines that everybody follows. Uh, but I, I do think there'll be mail-in ballots uh, going forward because people are, are going to be scared of not only coronavirus, but whatever else. All, all of you, in one way or another, touched on one common point, which is that the country's divided. I want to pull on that a little more because I want to, I came here 12 years ago and I think there was a lot of centrists in both the house and the Senate back then. And, you know, people compromised on legislation all the time and people came to the center. I see that less and less these days. I see people basically passing legislation when they have the ability to pass it in their party. And I don't see sort of bipartisanship happening too much with the exception of um, the uh, uh, crime bill, the crime um, legislation. Tell me, is, is this what we should expect going forward? Uh, I'll start with Brett and then I'll go to John, then I'll go to Mike and then Mina, I'll go reverse the order. But just tell me like what this divided country means for governing. It's been and um... I know you all are pro-benevolent dictatorship, uh, but uh, <laughs> it's easier when there's not a lot of, you know, people to um, to have to deal with this. And and Joe Biden inherently in his past has been a guy that's reached across the aisle. Uh, in this environment, though, it has been really challenging because even though in Congress you could say Democrats and Republicans agree on this long list of things, but in reality they get to the point where they are negotiating, they go to their sides, they go to their corners, and uh, it really never gets across the finish line. One of our most bipartisan presidents was President Eisenhower, who worked with uh, Democrats, Lyndon Johnson, uh, Sam Rayburn in the House and Senate to get big things done, like the national highway system that we drive on in the U.S. 
in order to get big things done, the only biggest things happen in a bipartisan way. We just haven't seen it in recent years. John, is there any chance of anything bipartisan happening in the next four years uh, in this environment? The, the, the short answer is yes. Uh, I, I, I think that Joe Biden is essentially going to have to have to operate what in a parliamentary system would look a little bit like a coalition government. Uh, you know, he's going to have uh, there's a very narrow uh, uh, majority if, if they hang on to it for the Republicans uh, in the Senate, a very narrow majority uh, for the Democrats in the House. And Joe Biden, who promised he was going to be a, a president, not for just Democrats, but a president for all Americans, uh, is, 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 you know, the head of the executive branch. And I think that the only way he's going to get things done is find a way to, 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 to build those coalitions. Uh, so, so I think that we will see bipartisan uh, legislation. Now, look, we are deeply divided. Uh, the, we're, Biden's getting off uh, in a very difficult way where, for God's sake, you know, most Republicans aren't even acknowledging that he won the election, but they will. And I thought Biden's, you know, for, for, for all the uncertainty and, 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 and all that Donald Trump has done to kind of challenge the credibility of, of, of our system here, uh, I think that the person that's been the least freaked out about this, perhaps in the entire United States, is Joe Biden. Uh, you know, he was asked uh, the other day at a, at a press conference, are you concerned about these Democrats not, you know, recognizing that you are the president-elect? And he just answered with a simple two words, they will. <laughs> they will. And he's going to work with Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell once, uh, Youssef told me, uh, years and years ago, years and years ago when I was covering Congress, um, he said, I'm a big fan of divided government. And what he meant by that is it's, it's a place where the deal makers can, 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 can work and nothing crazy on either side is going to get done. Neither party can go to the extremes. The only way to get things done is to, is to cobble these bipartisan coalitions. It'll be a challenge. But yes, I, 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 think, he, I think he's going to get things done. I mean, you know, we'll see how much. But yes, I think he'll get things done. Mike, what's your take? Yeah, so this idea of them being forced to work together is one thing that I think none of us would have, could have predicted. I think that uh, we thought the government was going to be pretty lopsided. It was a real surprise. Republicans uh, either on the cusp of or retaining control. And House Republicans who have wound up uh, gaining seats um, and now, like they only need a few defections from the government, from the Democrats, and like they're very relevant. So you have to work together in a way that uh, that no one has in a while. As John mentioned, like the President-elect Biden is wired for this. Like uh, President Obama was much more go it alone. He wasn't particularly popular. Didn't spend a lot of time when he was in. Uh, the Senate, uh, Donald Trump was Donald Trump. Joe Biden was born for this moment. He loves the Senate. He loves making deals. He, of course, was President Obama's uh, bridge to the Senate when uh, he was vice president. And so that's the Washington part of it. That's the swamp part of it. But Ambassador, I'm still very worried about America, that so much of America is not persuaded and uh, is not convinced of uh, the need to work together. And uh, someone who's a friend of, of all of us here on this podcast, Frank Luntz, the great uh, Republican bolster, 
Bolster said it to me in a very vivid way. Uh, the weekend before the election, he went to Reading, Pennsylvania to a Trump rally. And he came out and he said he was worried about how the country was going to heal. And the way he expressed it was, he said, these people aren't worried, uh, Trump voters, uh, Republican fans. He said, they're not worried about Joe Biden raising their taxes, which is a very uh, normal Republican fear. They're worried about him taking away their freedom. Now, of course, the opportunity there for soon to be President Biden is to show that that never was true, but of course is not true. So there's some opportunity there, but you look at who gets attention in the media. You look at who's posturing for future races. It makes that that middle ground that I think we're going to get some of in Washington. I think it makes it very hard out in the country. By the way, what petrifies Republicans about Trump is that as he leaves office, Biden comes together, whatever he does, whatever, you know, whatever Republicans he is able to work and get an agreement in with Trump will attack. Trump will go after after the Republicans for 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 selling out. And that will actually be something that they fear that we'll all care about. We're not going to care about every utterance of Donald Trump. But when Donald Trump goes and lobs a missile at Mitch McConnell, it's going to be newsworthy. And and they're 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 worried that that, that that's going to you know be a major obstacle uh, to working in any way uh, with, with Biden. So I, I well, that's you know, that's a big deal. And, and you start talking about uh, information. And the absorption of information, um, you know, we become sort of like ice hockey goalies to try to pe- prevent the bad pucks from getting through. And in social media and online, there's a lot of bad pucks and bad information that suddenly informs a lot of Trump supporters in the middle of the country that says X, Y, Z. And then it suddenly becomes like ingrained and you start seeing it in websites all over the place. And then it empowers this opposition to what's happening to try to get things done. So that's our job is to be able to speak to not only, um, you know, Biden supporters, but Trump supporters, but everybody as far as facts. And that's a a real challenge in this environment. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, a quick one for your uh, listeners. Uh, That was a great uh, quote by uh, Jonathan Carl, which I had not heard uh, from Leader McConnell. But uh, here's something else to remember about him. And it's gonna be great to see these master tacticians at work. We haven't seen that in a long time. So just as President Obama was always described as cool and aloof, Mitch McConnell was always described as wily, right? And something for your listeners to remember, the title of his memoir, the name of his book is The Long Game. And we saw that through the four Trump years and we're about to see that through the Biden years. Interesting. So Mina, you've heard very insightful perspectives from three people knee deep in all of this stuff every day. How does that stuff look to you for, while you're sitting in Abu Dhabi? You know, it's interesting, this idea of compromise. So in some ways, it's a blessing that you won't have the Democrats in complete control in Congress, because as we've just heard, the country's so divided that you don't want anything that's going to alienate 74 million people who feel at least a part of them will feel that they're under attack or that they're not being heard. So in some ways that's a blessing. But in other ways, if the United States 
um, and its leadership can't agree on stimulus packages or on economic packages, the whole world's economy is at stake. So people are concerned that this lack of compromise or the divisions that happen will have a knock-on effect on the economy because ultimately 2021, that's what it's going to be about. How does the US, how does the global economy emerge from COVID-19? But you know, it's interesting because I'm, I'm originally from Iraq and we have incredible dysfunction. And part of that dysfunction is because so much of the system is built on compromise at every step. And that lack of compromise or even compromising on too many things means that you grind to a halt. Now, I am in no way saying the United States is anywhere near the dysfunction of Iraq, but we've seen coalition governments, we've seen, of course, in, in other parts, parliamentary systems, where you end up having to compromise and everything and create coalitions without actually being able to deliver, to deliver big ticket items. So maybe not immediately after the election, but sometime soon, you will see the ability for that compromise to deliver something big. Otherwise, people might very soon get sick of having that division and, you know, just two more years and we'll be thinking, well, not even a year's time, we'll be thinking about the midterms in two years. Yeah, I'm not sure when compromise suddenly became a bad word. I think that's that's how things are supposed to work, whether in the office, in government, or even in your house, you have to compromise on getting anything done. All of a sudden, compromise is being seen through this negative light. Uh, it's also almost the same as selling out, which just makes no sense to me in, in a country that has two equally uh, strong parties that represent two halves of the country. You would think that compromise is kind of how this thing works. Um, all of you, again, once you know, mentioned something that I want to kind of pull on a little bit, and it's fast forwarding, let's say, two or four years from now. What is your sense? And I'll start with Brett. Where is the Republican Party four years from now? Where is the Democratic Party four years from now? And the reason I'm asking this is because you know, over the last 12 years I've been here, I've seen a shift in the Democratic Party. There's a part of it that goes further and further left. But there's also a shift in the Demo in the Republican Party. We've seen elements of a Tea Party. So I, you see these fringe groups break out of sort of mainstream Democratic and Republican systems. Where are we four years from now, Brett? I think this is the question of our business right now is, is what happens to the Republican Party? It was a hostile takeover. Um, by, and the Trump people describe it that way, of uh, the Republican Party. Um, and I think Donald Trump uh, in the short term is going to be a kingmaker uh, inside the party. However, I think that there is this hunger to get big things done. Believe it or not, I think there's going to be a return to some fiscal concerns about, uh, about deficits and debt. If you think back three cycles ago, we had a Republican nominee for president and presidential nominee that were doing events in front of a debt clock. Well, the, the national debt has not been a topic for either party. Um, and I, I bet you there's going to be a return to fiscal um, concerns. It'll be a little hypocritical because four years was really not uh, a factor at all. So I, I think what to answer your question, Ambassador, is, is what determines it is whether this equation with a divided government succeeds. Uh, and if it does, then there will be some, you know, exhale. I think part of this election was about just we're tired and the chaos and the Twitter every day and getting bombarded. Some of that was just like, let's just return to normal. And Biden was, was tapping into that. Yeah. John? 
Give us your forecast on where the parties are four years from now. Well, you know, first of all, just a word of caution on this. I, I, I remember uh, uh, about two decades ago, a writer named John Judas uh, writing a book called The Emerging Democratic Majority, um, suggesting like the Republicans were going to become extinct. And, uh, and, the, and it didn't really turn, turn out to be that way. And then I, and then I remember Karl Rove uh, uh, telling me um, sometime in, in Bush's uh, uh, beginning of Bush's second term, that, that basically that there was going to be a permanent Republican majority, and then we had. So look, I, you know, the predictions of demises of parties are. I mean, it does happen. I mean, the Whigs are gone, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it does happen. Um, but uh, I, I I think that uh, I agree with Brett. I mean, one of the stories, the story, I think I'm most fascinated with politically going forward is what the hell happens to the Republicans, and I think there is. There is a, a risk that they do become a permanent minority party. I mean, if they, if they need to change the demographic trends that that, that got uh, that that, um, that that exist in this country are would, would would suggest extinction for a party of Donald Trump. Um, even though he did have some gains among Hispanic voters, he did have uh, some modest gains among uh, uh, African American men. Look, he, it is, it is, he's largely the, the biggest category for him was uh, white men without a college degree. I mean, that, that, that is not a huge growing uh, group in this country to, uh, to, to, to base your party on. Uh, but that said, I think the other big question is, is what happens if, if, if so if the, if the Republicans kind of, kind of shrink, um, I see kind of two parties in one among Democrats. I mean, it, it really is two parties. There's Joe Biden's party and, you know, there's AOC's party. And the, the energy, the, the presidency is Biden, but the energy in that party is, is without question uh, on, on the left. Um, so, and, and, and I'm not sure those two are necessarily reconcilable. Uh, so I think that, that, that that's another big question. Does the Republican party basically survive as you know, reemerge as a majority party, or um, on the other side, do we see the, the the Democratic Party kind of fracture into two? Yeah, so that's really interesting because I've I've been reading a lot about you know within the Democratic Party, everybody's finger pointing and saying you're the reason that this didn't go well, and they're saying you know you're the reason this didn't go well, and there's a lot of blame going on about who's responsible for the Democratic performance on November third. And obviously it's not adjudicated, but each side of those two sides of the Democratic Party think the other one's wrong. So this is yeah. a civil war, so to speak, inside the soul of the Democratic Party. I mean, do you think the Democrats did poorly in those congressional races because uh, they were not progressive enough because uh, Joe Biden ran away from things like Medicare for all, and the Green New Deal? Um, is that why they, they couldn't excite the, the energy of their base? Or did the Democratic Party suffer because people were freaked out uh, about the possibility of America uh, turning into a socialist country? I mean, you uh, look at those congressional races in Miami, that's the, it's the latter, you know, campaigning yeah. against socialism with people who came from Cuba and Venezuela. Venezuela. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Miami-Dade County did not have the, quite the vote that you would have thought for becoming Venezuela. Now, I don't, I don't, I don't know that that was actually mm -hmm. Joe Biden's proposal, <laughs> but, but it's certainly the way it was portrayed uh, by, by the Republicans and very yeah. effectively so. Yeah. Mike? 
Yeah, so John's point about the demographic uh, disaster that awaits the Republicans, Republicans simply have to change. Like the, the math absolutely will not work for the next generation of Republicans. It barely worked for Donald Trump in 2016. A surprise is there were actually more Trump voters in 2020 than there were uh, four years ago, which I don't think any of us expected. But Republicans have seen this coming. This is a great irony that's very uh, familiar to my colleagues here. And that is that after Mitt Romney lost the presidency in 2012, the Republicans who were then chaired by Reince Priebus, who became uh, Donald Trump's first chief of staff, they did a look back at the election that got tagged an autopsy. And the autopsy uh, name absolutely captured the spirit of what they found. And they found that the party had to become more diverse in its appeals and more diverse in its candidates. And they were absolutely right about that in 2012. Donald Trump came along and found another way to crack the code. But I can tell you all the people looking at 2024, they know they need to do it differently. They need to appeal to more people. And on that note, when do you think the campaign for 2024 begins? It began right when Donald Trump floated the idea in Axios that he wanted to run again. Uh, but I, I don't, uh, I think that there, some people have reported even that he may announce, but by saying he wants to run, like whatever becomes of that, it's an effort to keep himself relevant, keep himself powerful, keep his muscle. And I can tell you the reason that so many Republicans have been so quiet in this period is that they know they may need his endorsement in a primary, or at the very least, they don't want his like anti-endorsement uh, tweet. They don't want him to, 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 to rag on them. So uh, that's, that was the start of it. Everybody trying to maneuver around um, a third uh, Trump presidential campaign. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think you look at the track of where candidates are going, uh, where senators are going. Tom Cotton is campaigning in the Georgia runoff. So is Ted Cruz. They also managed to campaign before the election in Iowa a few times. So did Nikki Haley. Uh, so 2024 is already like shaping up. But to Mike's point, uh, Trump, by saying he wants to run, potentially freezes some of the field for a little while until he realizes that he doesn't. So we're basically in a permanent campaign election mode in the United States for the next four years. We're in a, always in a permanent <laughs> campaign mode, it seems. And but, but, but occasionally there's some governing that happens. In the we're we're always that, we're always one election away from solving the biggest problems. But, um, <laughs> but Donald Trump, Donald Trump held campaigns throughout his presidency. I mean, he loved those town halls that were really campaign rallies more than they were the president presiding over affairs of government. So in some ways it's been. I mean, Donald Trump held his first rally during the transition before yeah. he was president. So, <laughs> uh, but, you know, but sometimes also it turns out that governing effectively can be can work pretty well in terms of campaigning. So, you know, I mean, I, I think there'll be, there'll be a lot of pressure on, on Biden to deliver. Uh, and I think that also, uh, you know, uh, that, that McConnell's gonna, gonna have a, a, a real incentive to, to show that he can get something done too. So what, what I've kind of pulled from this entire conversation is the Biden-McConnell relationship is gonna be key to watch going forward for getting things done. 
expect Donald Trump to uh, play an important role going forward from the sidelines as either you know, kingmaker or as a potential candidate in the future. We still have not figured out what happens with the Democratic Party. But other than that, everything <laughs> is going to go on as normal. <laughs> It'll be a new normal. It'll be a new normal. I also will point out, uh, Ambassador, that, that Nancy Pelosi is operating with a much thinner majority. And then heading into the next uh, election, you know, Democrats really have a threat that they could lose control of the House. And in that environment, I mean, it only takes five Democrats to go to the other side and she loses a vote. Um, so watch for a challenge of Nancy Pelosi. She's really good at being able to herd the cats uh, in her party, but it gets a little tougher if the numbers start to narrow and they, they have. I want to take this moment to thank all our guests. Um, Mina, Brett, John, Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your time. I found this incredibly insightful and eye-opening. Uh, a little scary in that we're going to be in constant campaign mode, but I think we'll still manage to figure out what's going on. I just, I'm fascinated by this stuff because I'm really interested in how this country works. And in the 12 years I've been here, I've seen some really interesting things. I've also seen some things that scare me, but I think as long as the country remains in the center, and the country remains unified and understands its role in the world, I think we will be okay. John, I want to thank all of you for being with us today. Thank you for your time. And it was a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. And, and, and you, you, are, you are known as kind of the uh, uh, unofficial head of the ambassadorial corps here in the United States, in Washington. And uh, there's a good reason for that. And the fact that you have been able to be an effective diplomat uh, in the United States under the presidencies of Obama and Trump really shows something. So uh, thank you for having us on. The, thank you, John. The only reason I've been effective is because I have good friendships with people like yourself and everybody on this panel. Thank you so much, guys. Really appreciate it. Thank you for being with us today. This has been PodBridge, produced with the support of the Embassy of the United Arab Emirates in the U.S. For more information about the PodBridge project, follow us on Twitter at UAEUSA United or visit our website at podbridge.com.